If you've got your Bible this morning, you can open it up. We are headed back to the book of John as we continue through our series, Follow Jesus. We're going to be in John chapter 14 this morning. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab one also from our welcome table and keep it. Um, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning in just a moment. Where we land uh, currently is about midway through the book of John, and in the middle section of John, John 13 through 17, is this portion where John, the writer of the gospel, is telling us about the last moments that Jesus has with his 12 disciples. This is his opportunity to share his final teachings, the last things that he wants to say, and then the final four chapters of John all cover the crucifixion scene as well as the resurrection scene. So we are actually very nearly to the end of our study through the book of John, and we will finish the book of John on Easter Sunday with the resurrection story. And believe it or not, Easter is already only six weeks away. So if you haven't dialed that math in, six weeks, Easter. Um, For these disciples, though, where they are at the moment is kind of a darker moment. They've just come off of the high in John chapter 13 of seeing Jesus ride triumphantly into Jerusalem. But that awesome moment has now immediately been replaced with a much darker moment because Judas has just run out of the upper room and betrayed Jesus, and Jesus has told the disciples what he is doing. Jesus has also simultaneously predicted that Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. And so they are beginning to get troubled. And the scripture is going to use that exact word here this morning. And what we're going to see here as we read the text in just a moment is Jesus is going to enter into this moment of darkness and trouble. And he's going to speak these very famous words, a passage that we read often when Jesus says, do not be troubled. And when Jesus says that, he has this powerful, amazing mixture of both authority and boldness, and yet at the same time, this loving, gracious, fatherly concern for these disciples that he is speaking to when he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. That word is not just for those 12 disciples, those original 12 followers. It is for us today, all of the church worldwide, as we seek to follow Jesus in circumstances that may feel troubling. Right, so we also, like they did, live in a time of fear, live in a time of anxiety, live in a time of alarm or or concern. And for us, many of the things are similar, many of them are different, but we have concerns over things like eroding religious freedom or violence in our country or political corruption of one type or another or injustices of various kinds or, oh yeah, the pandemic and all that goes with that. We have things that trouble us. Aside from just the regular Marriage is hard. Raising children is hard. Job troubles. How do we make ends meet? How do I find time to share the gospel and disciple my children and still get to Walmart this week? There are things that trouble us. And Jesus says in this passage this morning, don't be troubled. He's going to speak to us a word of comfort. Then he's going to give us the sixth out of seven I am statements that we've looked at. And then he's going to end by saying, listen, you followers of me, now that I am gone, you're going to do even greater things, even greater things than when I was here with you. 
So let's look now to the scripture and see what Jesus has for his followers this morning. John 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that, my, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's take a moment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the infinite, unbelievable, unmeasurable, overwhelming prophecies of this passage this morning. Lord, even as we face little troubles, let us see your great authority, your great mercy this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So three very powerful truths this morning from the word of God for troubled hearts. Just like the disciples, when we come to him with troubled hearts, Jesus has a word of truth, a word of comfort. Number one is this of the three. Number one, our future in heaven is hope for present troubles. Our future in heaven is hope for present troubles. And we see this in verses one through three. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. In verses one through three, he is going to tell us both how to do this, how to not be troubled, as well as why we should not be troubled. Both, obviously, we're going to want to know. Here's the how, very simply. And it may not have occurred to us how simple this statement is. How do I not be troubled? Jesus says this, believe in God. Believe also in me. You ever thought about that? As I face troubles, as I face anxiety, as I get overwhelmed, there is not a 19-step formula. There are lots of wonderful things that God has given to us, and they do bring comfort. But Jesus is saying, if you don't want to be troubled, believe in God. Not change your circumstances. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, what should 
blow our minds right off the bat here in this little conversation, how it's already developed, is Jesus is just hours away from the cross. What is more anxiety-filled than that? And yet, his heart is concerned for us. His focus is entirely on these 12 little disciples who are troubled. This is the same Jesus who a few hours from this conversation will be sweating drops of blood, says the scripture, as he considers the terror of what is going to come in the crucifixion. And yet through all of it, fully trusts his father. In fact, John 13, 21, it says Jesus was, quote, troubled about the betrayal of Judas. It's the same word in English. It's the same word in Greek. That word troubled literally means to to shudder, to shake in upsetness about what is taking place. But Jesus did that without sinning. He did it without losing any of his faith and trust and obedience in the Lord. So the disciples know Jesus is leaving. They don't understand it fully, but Jesus has told them this now directly a few times. What are you anxious about? What are the things that stress you out? This word is not just for those 12 men. It is for us today as well. Remember that like Jesus and like those 12 disciples, you can talk to God the Father 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He is open. He is ready to listen. Do not forget that, brothers and sisters. Even when it looks like your world is falling apart, even when it feels like darkness is overshadowing your life and your situation, Corey Ten Boom is a Christian woman that many of us have heard of her book, A Hiding Place. Corey Ten Boom was one who hid Jews during World War II from the Nazis and was eventually caught for it and thrown into a German extermination camp, which by God's grace she survived. One of the most powerful things that she writes in her book is this simple statement In darkness, God's truth shines most clear. In darkness, God's truth shines most clear. Do not worry about the darkness. It's not the issue. Focus your eyes on the light. And if Corey Ten Boom can tell us that, she absolutely is right. This applies to us as well. So what is the truth? Well, the truth that we focus on is that Jesus is God. And that when you believe in him, you shall be saved. The truth is is if you want to have an untroubled heart, the solution is to believe in God. Believe in Jesus. You know, the disciples had some amount of understanding, but the reality is, is we live after both Jesus' death and resurrection. They had not seen either take place. We have seen both take place, and so what we understand is that Jesus has already won. These disciples followed Jesus and ultimately did trust him and would give their lives in following Jesus, but how much more do we have? That's why Christians can be realists. We can be real because we recognize that there is cause to be troubled, but there is much greater cause, there is much greater reality to believe in God and trust him regardless of the circumstances. 
I've been incredibly encouraged by uh, Pastor Vody Bauckham. I shared a sermon of his about a year ago, right after Easter last year, called Why I Choose to Believe the Bible. He's a very influential preacher, pastor for me. He currently serves um, in Lusaka, uh, which is in the continent of Africa. I believe it's in Zambia. Yes, yeah, Zambia. Um, his joy and faith in difficult or even dark times this week has really challenged me and encouraged me. I want to read to you a little bit of what he has shared online of what he's going through. I'm just reading what he's written. Brethren, we are walking through the darkest valley we have ever faced. At the end of my winter preaching tour, he came to the U.S. for a preaching tour. Normally, he's serving in Africa. At the end of my winter preaching tour, 17 stops in 18 days. I'm exhausted just reading that. I thought I had just worked too hard, but as it turns out, I was experiencing heart failure. He describes a heart failure as the feeling of being waterboarded every two to three minutes. Um, I've not experienced heart failure or waterboarding, but it, not, it doesn't make me want to try out either, just to imagine what he's feeling and experiencing. Uh, he says this, after flying home from the U.S. to Zambia, he had to essentially turn around and fly back on a multi-leg journey to the U.S. for treatment just in time to get stranded by the winter storm in Texas this week that we've all seen. He was rerouted three times uh, on various planes while still dealing with heart failure, and, uh, and then to the ER, and he is this morning at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, praise the Lord, um, all with no insurance. By virtue of him serving in the ministry that he is in Zambia, uh, there is no insurance for him, and so an educated estimate that friends of his have put forward is that his expenses will be one and a quarter million dollars without insurance um, to address these things going on in his life. Dark stuff. Reasons to be troubled. But what he has communicated, even if it is by words on a screen, on a page, is to live as Christ, to die as gain. I believe in Jesus. My hope is in him. I trust him regardless of what the circumstances will be. And Vodi is not perfect. He is a sinner like you and me. But I'm so challenged by the way that I see him trusting the Lord through this whole situation. And we can be praying for him and with him. And by the way, by God's grace, the church global who has seen his situation has already donated $1.3 million just in the last six days to entirely take care of his need. It's from the Lord. The Lord is in control. He knows what's going on. That's the how. Why? Here's why. Here's why we can believe in God and, and not be troubled. Our home is heaven. Our home is heaven. We're not supposed to be fully settled here. This is cool and all, but this is not it. There is more. We get so dialed into the here and now that we forget that this is not the end. This better not be it. Heaven is better. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain writes this, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing that we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, in which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. 
As a child, I remember hearing the passage, John chapter 14, verse 2, that says, In my father's house are many rooms, and I envisioned a hotel. A a long hotel, long corridor, lots of little rooms. As I have grown in my faith and matured a little bit, I have come to realize it's not a hotel. It's a home. It's God's home. It's his house, and it's really big. And every room is massive, and there is room for each one of us, and there are lots and lots of rooms, and it will never fill up because it's God the Father's home. It's Jesus, his son's home. It is the Holy Spirit's home, and it is our home, not just a hotel stay. I preached uh, my first sermon from John 14 four years ago, and that was at my grandmother Harris's funeral. It's the hardest funeral that I've ever preached, but I have come from that moment to understand and appreciate what Jesus is saying in John 14 more than I ever did before. It it took grief for me to understand the promises that Jesus was, was talking about. And I love to share that passage when friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, when saints pass away. And so I got to share that passage when Frida Rigby passed away. I got to share that passage when Kristen Goodnight passed away. I got to share that passage when Lynn Gorris passed away. Because here's the deal. The death of a believer in Jesus is not at all like the death of one who does not believe in Jesus. There is hope. There is joy. Because we know that that believer, the moment that they leave us, they are with Jesus personally. They're in heaven with Jesus personally, and it is a place that Jesus has prepared personally. So yes, we grieve, but we do not grieve as one who has no hope. We celebrate their home going, and we find hope for our troubles now because home is heaven. And we don't just get the place, heaven, we get the person, Jesus. You see that? The best part about heaven is not the luxurious jasper walls, which I'm sure they're going to be amazing. The best part is that God is there with us and that we all believers are there with him forever and ever. You know, the New Testament says 318 times Jesus promises that heaven is there and that he is going to return and take us home personally. 318 times. Think that's an important point? That's not a throwaway, right? 100% of us are going to die. All those who believe in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior will spend eternity in heaven, our permanent home with King Jesus. And that is a reason not to be troubled. Amen? Number two, Jesus goes on and explains a little further. Number two, our way to heaven is Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Our way to heaven is Jesus, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we see this in verses 4 through 11. Notice that when Jesus explains this, that the majority of verses 4 through 11 is actually three disciples who still don't understand, and they pose very reasonable but messed up questions. Peter Actually, in chapter 13, we looked at this two weeks ago, Lord, where are you going? He says in chapter 13, verse 36. Thomas, 14, verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Philip, 14, verse 8, Lord, 
Show us the Father. To which Jesus answers each of them in order. Peter, although you can't follow me now, one day you will follow me there. Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And now he's going to walk them through these realities. I want us to understand that this is not a popular notion in our world today. It does not matter. What matters is what is the truth. Carl Lenz is the former pastor of Hillsong, New York City. He is the now fired pastor at Hillsong, New York City. Uh, What I'm going to walk you through is not the reason that he was fired. But about four years ago, he did an interview with Oprah Winfrey. And she, um, among other things, has always um, shared the view that there are millions of ways to God. And so she is interviewing Pastor Carl Lenz on that topic. And she asked, listen to the way that she phrases the question, but she asked this question. Do you believe that only Christians can be in relationship with God? Do you believe that only Christians can be in relationship with God? Pastor Carl Lenz answers, no. He's already wrong. No, and I'm quoting him, no. I believe that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the way I read that, Jesus said, he is the road marker. He is the map. But I think God loves people so much that whether they accept him or reject him, He's still gracious and he's still moving and he's still giving you massive red blinking lights for chances to take a right turn where maybe you would take a left. It sounds kind of good to our world that thrives on relativism where everybody can still be right, on syncretism where we take what we love from every religion and we put it in a bowl together and we mix it all up and say, everybody, everything works. It's all good. Relativism doesn't work syncretism doesn't work. And you notice even in his answer that Carl cannot decide who he wants to appease with his answer. His answer is not even consistent in his own sentence, and he wants to make everybody happy and commit to nothing so that as he throws his spaghetti on the wall, it will not stick. There's no substance to what he is saying. Here's what Carl should have said. Here's what Carl should have said. First of all, it's not about me. It's not even about Christians. It's about Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, who came to earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again from the dead in order to save sinners like me. That's where it should begin. And if you want to talk about relationship, well, yes, Psalm 19, 1 and 2, Matthew 5, 45, among other places, tell us that all of humanity can see the evidence of God and all of humanity knows about God. But that is not the same thing as having a relationship with God. Further, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God created every single human being lovingly, perfectly, in Adam and Eve, but something has happened, and that something is sin. And when sin entered the world, it broke relationship with God. And we, on our own, cannot fix it. That's why Romans 6.23 says, for the wages or the payment of sin is death. Death is, among other things, separation from God. But even in that curse, the promise is there. But the gift of God is eternal life, through 
Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where Carl should have, if he truly loved Oprah and all those who were listening, that is where he should have gone. Then he could have taken them to Ephesians 2, 12 and 13 to help them see this. All at one time we were separated from Christ, strangers to God, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That means that all humanity has a problem with sin that we cannot fix. All humanity is born with a broken, cut-off relationship to God because of what we did, because of our sin. And God, the only one who could fix it, took the initiative and sent himself, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who lived the perfect life, died on the cross, rose again from the dead three days later, and has made the only way that we can be reconciled and have real permanent, eternal relationship with God the Father. That's what Carl should have said. He missed out on an opportunity to share the gospel. Jesus did not say, I'm the roadmap. He didn't say, I'm a blinking light. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus did not say, if you reject me, you can still find a way to heaven. He did not say that. And Jesus anticipated clearly the twisting of his teaching. How you twist, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I don't know. But for Jesus to be clear, notice what he adds, the second half of his sentence. No one comes to the Father except through me. He does not want people to be misinformed because he loves them. We are not doing anybody any favors by hiding behind the truth. Jesus knows it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to God in a prayer, God the Father, if it is possible for humanity to be saved by any other way, then let this cup, the cup of death, pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And what did he follow that up with? He went to the cross because it was the only way for sinners like me to be saved. He's the way. He is the way to reconciliation with God. And so in that, he is the one true high priest. So Thomas says, how can we know the way? Thomas doesn't need a roadmap. He doesn't need a list of rules to follow to impress people. And he does not need cultural popularity contests to appease the masses. He needs to know Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. That means he is the sole source of illumination. He is the great prophet, the final prophet. He is the word of God. He doesn't say, I have come to tell you the truth about the Father. Right? I've come to tell you the truth about God. No, no, he says, I am the truth. John 10, 30, he says once again, I and the Father are one. I am God is what he is telling them. And Jesus is the life. He's the only way to regeneration, new life, because he is the one true eternal king over life and death. So instead of separation, he is the way, and instead of ignorance, he is the truth, and instead of death, he is the life. Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died on the cross to pay for our sins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of eternal life is Jesus Christ. Sin separates us from God the Father, but Jesus has made a way to heal that broken relationship that you and I cannot. 
If you've never asked Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, then today ought to be the day, recognizing that nothing that I do can change my need for him, and that everything that Jesus has already done can save me from my sins and give me a new home and give me a new identity and give me a new lease on life where I can say no to sin and yes to obedience by the power of his Holy Spirit in my life. And if you are a believer this morning and you know Jesus, then this is yet another reason to give him praise and to give him thanks and say, Jesus, thank you that death did not win in my life. It's not because of me or anything that I did. It is because of your love and your grace outpoured for me. And if you're a believer this morning, then you should not be able to help but talk about this great news, this powerful truth, this life-changing reality. And every moment that we have is an opportunity to share the good news because there is plenty of room in heaven. And let's be used by God to do just that. Third and finally, very briefly, third point that Jesus finishes with in verses 12 through 14 is this. While still here on earth, you will do greater works through Jesus. While still here on earth, you will do greater works through Jesus. Let's reread those last two verses, three verses. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, what is the works that Jesus has done and is doing? Well, he brings dead hearts to life. He reconciles us to God. He brings us to heaven. He's talking about us being a part of Jesus' mission that lasts until the day that he returns to see even more people come to a saving, personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And when he says greater things, this is exactly what he means. If we walk through the rest of the New Testament, look at the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends, goes back to heaven. And at that moment, Acts chapter 1 tells us, very importantly, there are about 120 Christians on planet Earth. That's the whole group. And in Acts chapter 2, the very first time that the disciples go out and preach the good news, it says that Peter was preaching, and that day, 3,000 people became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about. That greater works, greater numbers, salvation, which is God's mission here on earth, that people would be saved and come to know the glory of God the Father and have personal relationship with him, that we get to be a part of that. And now today, if you think about it, there are untold millions of people on every continent from every era of history that know Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. Greater things that Jesus is doing today through the power of his Holy Spirit. And we desire for that to take place ultimately, that every tribe, every tongue, every nation would know Jesus. And we're not there yet because his mission here on earth is not done yet but there will be a moment that he returns to take us home. And he gives us the promise, ask anything in my name and I will do it. 
Guys, our future in heaven is hope for present troubles. Our way to heaven is Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And while still here on earth, we will do greater works through Jesus. Let's take a moment and let's pray together.